0: Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Knowledge Exchange podcast. I'm your host, Daniel, lead mentor at the Knowledge Exchange, where we run online courses and online mentorship. Check it out at tkex.org. I'm joined today by Mr. Jared Powell, the shoulder physio, Instagram influencer. You may have seen his awesome memes. I'd like to call him one of the meme kings of social media. So Jared, thank you so much for, for making the time out of your busy schedule.
1: Thank you for having me, Daniel. Pleasure to be here.
0: Jared, what's so the the story? The question I ask everyone is, what's, what's your story?
1: My story is pretty typical, I would say. I uh, I have always been interested in sport and science, and so that propelled me down a pretty obvious career path of trying to combine the two, which is not too many options for. So I was either going to be exercise physiology, medicine, or physiotherapy. Uh, I chose physiotherapy. I don't know why. I mean, I could have, in, a, in parallel universes, I may have ended down another path, but, uh, but here I am. And so, yeah, physio, it's probably 10 years ago now, I qualified as a physio and just worked for a bit uh, in a private practice and then I went overseas. For a couple of reasons, I went and worked in London. I was fairly disillusioned with physio practice at the time. That was seven or eight years ago. And so I got the uh, proverbial shit and went overseas and travelled and met some interesting people over in London, such as Jeremy Lewis, who has turned out to be uh, my great mentor and PhD supervisor. And yeah, kind of changed the way I approach uh, physiotherapy, and then. Came back after a couple of years, started my PhD, started doing a bit of lecturing, started some online stuff, and, and here we are. So um, my story is, is just a, a, hopefully a typical evolution of a, of a sort of allied health professional or any professional where you graduate, you think you know, know everything, you realize you don't, and then you start reading to fill in the gaps, as it were. So, so that's my professional story over the last 10 years.
0: Awesome. I uh, love that you seeked out different, so different environment, different sources of information. You still kept upskilling and, and had a mentor along the way. So it shows the value of, of just changing maybe your context into um, and having that support network now to, to keep your mm. going and find different areas of interest. Right.
1: Totally, mate. Like it's uh, to be honest, like if you are struggling with motivation or you're struggling with the industry, You've, you can't just sit around and whinging and complaining. You've got to get off your backside and do something about it and change your practice or try and change the culture of the profession that you're in. So I have no time for people who sit around and complain. You've got to change the course of your destiny as it were.
0: Love it. Words of wisdom. We've got, um, I've got a few questions. So I've been following you for, for a while. I'm sure our listeners have as well. There was a post that you made which was really interesting And it's really great to hear your insights on your own experience of dealing with an injury. So you had a a pec tear a little while ago. Could you tell us the Mm. story and how how was your experience with all the knowledge that you have with the rehab and recovery?
1: Very interesting experience. So it's my first major shoulder injury. I'll I'll call the pec as part of the shoulder complex. Uh, I've had little rotator cuffs Uh, flare-ups every now and then, but this is a significant injury. The story goes, I every Christmas, me and my friends go out and play a game of cricket and we're all ageing. I'm 33 now and I'm not as malleable as I once was and I'm probably not as fit as I once was as well, carrying a little bit of extra weight these days. Um, So, went out, played a bit of cricket. I'm the opening bowler, opening fast bowler and I had literally not rolled my arm over in any manner uh, of f- a similarity to cricket fast bowling in the 12 months before. I'd, have, I'd been for a one-hour surf just before that as well. I'd had a couple of beers, I must admit, uh, mid-strength beers, 4X Gold up here in Queensland. And I was feeling great. And, two, two deli- I, got, and I, I must say this, I got, I got a wicket with my first delivery. I bowled some guy, middle stump. And I was feeling very good about myself. Confidence was high. And two deliveries later, I felt felt a little twinge in my shoulder. Uh, to be honest, the locality it didn't feel like a peck. It just felt like some tightness. So from from like a from from this perspective of where did the pain feel like it was coming from? It was vague and non-specific. And then the next delivery, something just felt really off. And I think. That was the fourth or the fifth, and my last one was total crap. And then I went into the outfield and just started rolling my arm over a little bit, trying to stretch out my pecs because that's that's what you want to do, right? That's this dualist notion of it feels something feels off. I need to stretch it and, and figure it out. Um, but that didn't seem to help. The second over was complete garbage. I could barely finish it, and then for the rest of the innings, I couldn't bowl and I couldn't throw the ball from the outfield, and I was uh, I was com- almost an invalid and not participating at all. And that was, that was pretty tough. So, so that's, and then as it evolved, I got home, there was significant bruising the morning after and then 48, 72 hours. There was a huge bruise down my proximal bicep, which went all the way down to my elbow after a week. Nothing on the pec or something was quite uh, faint around the pec uh, itself. So that was, that was interesting but the pain was was quite severe around here. It hurt to adduct and flex my arm. So all the telltale signs were there. Yeah, and it kind of evolved over a period of, of a week or so. And my suspicion was that it was a pretty high grade two or close to a grade three um, tear. So you look at the literature and that suggests that you've got to go and get it MRI scanned and surgically repaired, there's no, ifs and buts about it. But I decided to just just uh try conservative management first if I was going to um practice what I preach, which is what I did. And it, it certainly got better, but it was it was hard. It hurt. I was functionally limited. I, you know, hurt to sleep at night. I couldn't do the, the activities that are meaningful and enjoyable to me. So it kind of interfered with my identity and my emotional state as well. But I also could do things, you know, so I got back into doing weight training after two or three days and I could do some gentle pushing movements, not without pain, but not significant pain. And I was happy with the trajectory that I was on. So I decided not to escalate my care at all. And here I am three months later now and 99%. There is a little defect still in my pec, but I feel like that is getting better but it's not painful and I can do push-ups and I can do every activity that I want to do. So I'm happy.
0: Amazing. Three months conservative. You beat me. Yeah, the, um, yeah the three, months,
1: three months conservative. Yeah. Awesome. I feel, I feel like it's. if I was to throw a ball, I uh, haven't tried that, maybe that would be difficult or if I was to do high-velocity plyometric movements, that might be hard. But at, at this stage, when I'm 33 years old and I just want to do basic things, I, I, I don't feel like I need to pursue further intervention at
0: this stage awesome it's great to get the first-hand experience of the emotions involved the you've taken out of your meaningful activities work related and activity related and then gradually bringing yourself back into it and learning to work with some pain versus avoiding it all in one it's really good
1: yeah so it's the whole biopsychosocial model in in practice but it was very hard to do from a first person point of view because I am very biased when it comes to uh, my own feelings, emotions and sensations. So to put myself out of that box uh, was, was very interesting and I think it created a little bit more empathy and sympathy for my patients and clients as well.
0: And also it goes to show that if, if someone is looking to go back into a high velocity, high impact, uh, intense, elite um, functional status, if they're an elite athlete, then maybe there might be some room for some surgical intervention, depending on how, but even then, having that conservative management at the start seems to be the way to go for most, for the most part. Would, would you say anything?
1: Yeah, no, look, I, I I don't even know that elite athletes need to go down this pathway of surgical management at this point. And that's just for my case at that time, right? So if somebody has a huge frank rupture and they have no adduction strength, then they've got to get that repaired. However, if you still have seemingly an intact pec, albeit with some pain and dysfunction, then there is rationale to try conservative management there first and foremost. Um, but it's, it's the same thing as rotator cuff repair and ACL management. We've got this. We've got this notion that it needs like biomechanics needs to be restored for people to function well. And if you have followed my work in any capacity around rotator cuff repairs, you'll know that that's just wrong from an evidence perspective. And I'm going to apply that to most things unless there is a frank rupture or something's unstable or if there is an unreduced fracture or something like that. They're the only things that need surgical fixation immediately.
0: Awesome. I think that answered most of the the next question as to when that would warrant surgical opinion. So having the instability, depending on their level of function, um, after a period of perhaps conservative management for any atraumatic um, injuries, would you add? Anything else to that mix of some of the considerations you would have?
1: Um, Yeah. So if we speak speak in general about the shoulder, the, the evidence probably still suggests that a full thickness rotator cuff tear sustained in a traumatic fashion where there is like proper weakness, meaning you can't hold your arm isometrically at 90 degrees and it drops down called the drop arm sign. If that's present, and the tear is moderate to large, three to five centimetres or more, and you are under 40, then that probably needs surgical intervention. If you're over 40 or significantly over 40, then we can have a conversation about what you need to do with your arm, so on and so forth. But, but, but 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 a traumatic full thickness rotator cuff tear in a young person probably does better with surgical intervention. The shoulder instability, as you just mentioned, and then an unreduced fracture.
0: Gotcha. Really good to know. The other contentious issue, especially amongst the sports, physio, sports rehab world, is our dislocations. So, especially if someone is returning to a high impact sport such as rugby, what would be the indications for, for you and for us to see if they warrant surgical opinion after a, a dislocation?
1: Yeah. So, if we're talking about an anterior dislocation first time in a young male, for example, and that's usually the demographic that it affects then the, there is evidence that suggests that early shoulder reconstruction or stabilization is better for redislocation rates than conservative management but people with a, with a dislocation and get their shoulder stabilized the classic stabilization procedure still dislocate their shoulder especially when they are in contact sport or they're in uncontrolled environments so so still up to 30% of those people redislocate their shoulder. So that's not an insignificant number. But that number is probably closer to 50% in people who don't get surgical intervention. So there might there is still that superiority. Having said that, is it worth taking a year out and getting surgery and doing all of this to rehab your shoulder and then it re-dislocates? We've got many examples of elite athletes who have this recurrent instability of their shoulder even after surgery. And then they've got to increase their management to a J procedure and they get a J procedure and they actually lose range of motion. So that can affect their performance as well. And, and that's if we're just talking about rugby. If we're talking about throwing athletes or overhead athletes, then we've got data that suggests that if you're, a, if you're a throwing athlete or an overhead athlete, there's a one in three chance that you'll actually return to your previous level of function in terms of elite sport participation. If you're an amateur athlete, then, and this is after, and this is actually, I'll just qualify that statement. That's after a rotator cuff repair. That's not after a shoulder dislocation procedure. Um, so, so we've got to think really carefully about, well, what are the chances of this person actually getting back to the, to the meaningful activity or the activity in which they earn their money? What are the actual chances of getting that person back to that level of function? It's not just about re rates. We've got to look, We've got to look more deeply at at that human and also uh, what their arm needs to be able to go through in terms of demand in their activity of choice. So if you look at the literature, I'll try and say this in a black and white matter as best I can. You're less likely to re-dislocate your shoulder in the first couple of years after a primary dislocation if you get a stabilisation procedure. And that is significantly better than a, a conservative regime. However, surgery, surgery is not a panacea. It doesn't stabilize everybody forever. There are still redislocations. There are far more uh, complications to surgery versus conservative management as well. So, and then you've also got to factor in what is that person doing? So if we're using the rugby example, then there is rationale there that that person probably needs to have a stable shoulder. And you also got to look at the age of the person. So the older they get. So if I were 35 versus 25, I would still approach that that person differently from whether we get surgery or not.
0: So there's, there's better outcomes if they are at a younger age, or in that case, for the. Yeah, so, so,
1: so more chance of a redislocation the younger they are. So if they were 20, then their chance of a redislocation is like 80% over their life. If they were 35, that goes down to like 50%. So it's, it's, we're just playing statistics here. So the younger they are, the more likely they are to have a registration versus the older that they get.
0: Awesome. It's, and it goes to show that the importance of, of function of that athlete or that patient, what they want to get back into. And regardless, they need that high-quality rehab regardless of the choice that they make. It's not just, like you said, it's not a panacea where they just have surgery in their back straight away. They need a lot of toil and hard work in that, 12 month recovery period. So would you then opt for trying to get that three months of high quality rehab for most, most cases as as uh, as indicated initially and then having that decision made later on?
1: Yeah, for for amateur people, then always I try three months of conservative management, focusing on all of the things you can focus on. I'm not gonna get into it, but for for a professional athlete to get it gets difficult because there are other influences outside of the physio and the, and the client or, or the exercises or whatever. So you've got to think about the coach and you've got to think about managers and all this sort of stuff and it gets complicated. And, and often the choice that they make is not a choice based on evidence or based on science or based on, on a rational interpretation of things. It's based on money, time out of action, contract renewal uh, how many other players are injured at the same time how the team's going are they bottom of the ladder or top of the ladder so all of these things come into it and unfortunately the the objective evidence is not the first thing that is considered
0: the beauties of the elite sports world right many other stakeholders
1: yeah it's 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 my i have a, a huge issue with how elite sport is is run and that's why i tend to stay away from it as much
0: as i can awesome we might have to save that rant for a whole other episode because um i share the same same feelings and even Mm. when there are multiple stakeholders it's just make it makes it so much harder for rehab in general Mm. for recovery in general Mm. so the the other common uh issue we see with in in clinic would be patients that you experience it yourself where we have pain at night time, so that's that's the main complaint after say a rotator cuff related shoulder pain. Um, what's what's your approach when it comes to 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 dealing with that when there's pain at night? What what do you what
1: are your kind of approaches with that? Yeah, it's an it's an interesting one. So, firstly, like, how does that person feel about having pain at night, right? And if it's like it's okay, I can still sleep, but I'm aware of my shoulder when I go to sleep, and I'm aware of it. In the morning if it's not keeping them up all night or every half an hour whenever they roll over and then that i feel that that person is not worrying or anxious about it or or perceiving the worst then i think we have a conversation about that this, this can happen your system is sensitized for whatever reason depending on that particular person but i say this is not an indicator of whether you're going to get better or not in the future. This is just the stage of play at the moment. Your system is irritable. We need to work to reduce factors, to reduce irritability, blah blah, 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 blah. So, however, if that person is clearly worried, they're not sleeping, and it's starting to really affect their quality of life, then and we've got to do something about it. So then you have discussions about position, you have discussion about Uh, pharmaceutical management, or you can refer them to the GP to talk about that as well. You can talk about basic modalities such as ice and all of these things, or you can just say, look, if you sprained your ankle, then you're probably going to have pain at night a little bit for the first few weeks, right? If you can de-threaten that sensory stimulus that you're feeling at that time, then you will find that over the next four to six weeks that that will get less and less and less. However, if you start to catastrophize, worry, develop fear, ruminate, do all these sorts of things, that will continue to sensitize your system and may adversely affect your outcome at 12 weeks down the path. So so it's all about education and trying to get that person to reconceptualize, if they need to, why that pain is there at that time in the evening. And then you empathize and you validate, you say, I'm sure this is. Hugely problematic. Nobody wants to have pain when they're trying to sleep at night, and then there's this cascade of effects that happen physiologically if you're not sleeping well. And I totally understand that, but it's not a predictor of outcomes. So just because you have pain at at, night time right now, it doesn't mean you're going to be any worse than somebody else who does. Simple. You still have a great chance of getting better, depending on what they want to do, at 12 weeks or six months down the line
0: awesome validating their experience and empathizing and then giving them that hope that it will get better with time as you know mother nature progresses on natural healing and eventually with methods to desensitize the the nervous system so that it just normalizes that experience i love the the analogy of the sprained ankle it can be really related relatable for a lot of
1: people totally look and this is something i'm trying to get better at it's it's understanding that human beings who aren't health practitioners are are lay people. They don't understand the science behind pain or they don't understand the the intricacies of inflammation or, or what have you. So, so they grasp or they are, they are attracted to, okay, this hurts when I do this, this worries me. If I can't sleep, there must be something sinister going on. I need to, get this addressed, this needs to go away in order for me to have control over my symptoms and therefore over my life. So they, so they latch on to these things which feel like, well, this is, this is evidence to me that my body is not right. And so if you, as you just uh, repeated before, if you validate that and say, yeah, that it's, a, it's a really horrible moment and I totally feel for you. However, this is human biology, this is human physiology. When your system is under threat or injured, then your body pays particular attention to it in order to get you to do the right things by it to maximize uh recovery. So 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 I understand why they get sort of stuck in these thoughts and these negative uh thoughts because it, it it's what they can understand and it what feels it's what feels right.
0: That's it, and, and we often forget who we're talking to if we talk a lot to other clinicians or, or colleagues with our certain language and jargon, they don't even understand biopsychosocial, the, the terms or they don't see the links between cat- catastrophizing and the sensitization of, of their nervous system. So yeah, really great points there to, to take mm. a step back and, and uh, yeah, put yourself in, in their shoes initially and then reassure them gradually that it's actually, it's, it's a normal part of the, the experience, the human condition.
1: Yep, exactly.
0: There was uh, the, the other questions I've had, so I've, I've gathered a few questions from our listeners, which is surrounding frozen shoulder. So it's quite a, a significant condition. And there is perhaps a little bit less of that education in our, in our tertiary education where we give, give um, evidence-based advice as to how to deal with it. And taking your course, I upskilled a lot, learnt a lot. So shout out to the courses that you run and the education that you put out wanted to pick your brains a little bit on, on now moving on to telehealth. A lot of us are using video consultations as part of our practice and we are conducting some assessments with, um, with patients. So how would you assess for some active and passive ranges of motion? And if we suspect that someone has frozen shoulder, how would you go about initially with that assessment through a, through a video call through a video consultation?
1: Yeah, good question. Um, so frozen shoulder for me, I can almost detect it before I even see a person move based on subjective features of, the, of that person. It's, it's usually a giveaway. It's, it's, it's the demographic. It's always 40 to 65 years of age or 40 to 60 years of age. The mostly female, although the stats say about 60-40, although in my experience, I see way more females versus males and it's this pain it's this it's this unrelenting pain that never really leaves them and it sort of it it goes along for a little while for a few weeks or a few months and then it spikes and that's when it gets really bad and that's atypical for a rotate calf related shoulder pain and there may also be comorbidities such as diabetes and uh, just general metabolic syndrome we think now is, is the risk factor so so if they First of all, when I'm asking them questions about, you know, the classic subjective examination, if they're rattling these things off, then straight away I'm suspecting this. And then what I then do is the whole point of the physical examination is just to validate your, your subjective examination for me. And so in active range of motion, if you haven't got it in the first six weeks, the frozen shoulder presenting, so if you see someone after the first six weeks, they're going to have that classic restriction of usually abduction, external rotation, internal rotation, but even into flexion, you're going to see the shrug sign and you're going to see more of a scapular thoracic movement as opposed to a you know, humeral movement. And that's enough for me. Sometimes I'll get their partner or them to see if they can lift it any further versus what they can lift. And that's that more passive range. And if they do, you can see them more just leaning or, or using compensatory strategies there and then abduction is usually profoundly affected and you can see in the person you can just see and this is not a scientific way of doing an assessment but they just run out of they run out of range of motion they're not just stopping because they're fearful you can just see that it gets to a finite endpoint and again I will sometimes get their partner which I've been which I've been known to do a couple of times before see if they can push any further which, which the person hates and the partner loves usually and then the one that I, that I usually need to see if, if I'm working clinically is lying on their back and doing a abduction external rotation movement. And you'll see profound differences in that range of motion versus the unaffected side. They'll almost have zero degrees of external rotation in that position. And again, I'll utilize the partner there as well. But this is only if I'm like hunting to try and get the diagnosis. So I've ruled out rotator cuff related shoulder pain. I've ruled out Uh, shoulder instability, I've ruled out pain referred into the shoulder from other structures, I've ruled out red flags, I've ruled out blah, 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 then really we're left with frozen shoulder or an unreduced dislocation, which if there was no trauma, that is unlikely to be the case, or a fracture, again, no trauma, unlikely to be the case. We're left with osteoarthritis, like a profound osteoarthritis, or a frozen shoulder in which case you can still advise them to go out and get an x-ray to rule one of those out, um, or you can just work on the provisional diagnosis of a frozen shoulder.
0: So you don't always need that x-ray to, to make sure if, if there's no signs of, of any fracture or if they're at the age where likely they not have that severe osteoarthritis?
1: It's a good question. There's no, there's no answer in the, in the literature at the moment. It depends on the clinician and how, how I like to approach this is I think think a tumour or a neoplasm masquerades as a frozen shoulder, 1% out of all frozen shoulder presentations. So if you you see 100, one of them may be secondary to a a sinister finding. So are you willing to take that risk as a clinician? Or if you want to mitigate that risk, then there's no harm in going out and getting an x-ray. But there is harm from their perspective in terms of radiation and all this sort of stuff. But it, it comes down to this clinical decision-making based on pros and cons. And for me, up until maybe the past six months, I have routinely encouraged everybody to go and get an x-ray because the definition of a frozen shoulder diagnosis is an equal restriction of passive and active range of motion in the presence of a normal x-ray. So that has been the definition of a frozen shoulder. However, a study more recently by Chris Littlewood has challenged this, this notion of whether we need to actually make it mandatory for somebody with suspected frozen shoulder to get an x-ray because it is quite rare for it to be something else. 1% is not, is not higher. So I educate people based on all of those findings and I actually leave it up to the person. I'm like, well, this is, this is, the, this is the statistic right here and i can show you the article if you would like if this were my shoulder i probably wouldn't be running out and exposing myself to radiation for the one percent chance that something may happen if your symptoms change or worsen and this is why you need to stay vigilant for red flags because that is an evolving dynamic process that might may change by the day you don't rule the red flag out you just stay vigilant for it and if it changes, then we can also we can always go out and get an X ray. So my approach has actually changed in line with evidence over the last six months, and that's what I totally advise everybody else to do as well.
0: Awesome. Respect to that. Always vigilant to red flags and vigilant to the evidence that comes out that mm. can um, mm. update our practices as we go along, and give, having that shared mm. decision making as well at the end, where it's it's where empowering the patient to decide.
1: Totally. Yeah. Totally. And it comes back to just red flag screening generally. Like, sure, we're, we've all done it to death, but just, you just have to ask about a previous history of cancer and you have to ask about do you feel systemically unwell and weight loss and all of these things, right? Like, it, you've got to ask these questions and it's just not to pass a test at university. It has real-life implications. So I would highly encourage everybody to keep going over those and be on the lookout. If something doesn't feel right, it may not be right. So you best off to just go and get a second opinion on it. Awesome.
0: And there's the with frozen shoulder, the prognosis is quite um, a long one and having that initial telling the person the, the prognosis and the news of that it's going to be quite a long time might be a bit confronting and not really the best news to hear for someone. How would you approach the delivery, the education alongside the, the suspected recovery rates and how long the rehab will take.
1: Yeah, much the same way you would approach somebody being diagnosed with another chronic condition, I feel. So somebody who's recently t- diagnosed with type 2 diabetes or, or even hypertension or something like that, you, I take a long time to explain the condition. So I run through it in a stepwise fashion, making sure they understand the pathophysiology even, the the etiology, the classification, the evidence for management, all of these things. So they feel empowered to actually make a decision. And also they feel and it just comes back and I'm gonna repeat myself, but all I try and do with these people and anyone with a persistent pain presentation is to make them feel in control of their future and of their pain. That's it. And so the more knowledge that they have around it, typically, is the, the better they feel equipped to actually confront their rehabilitation so so I, I look at the i look at the evidence and i show them the evidence and i say okay the the actual prognosis here may be used if you if you sort of do things the right way you, re, you remain active you look at your lifestyle factors you exercise your shoulder within reason you don't catastrophize and ruminate and develop depression and all these sorts of things, then then your recovery may be less than 12 months and you may notice quicker improvements than others. But if we look at it on average, if you look at a a thousand frozen shoulders, then most of those people will take two years to achieve full recovery. doesn't mean you as an individual will take two years to achieve recovery. There are things that will make your shoulder worse probably doing nothing uh, developing fear, this will make your shoulder recovery far worse. So if you can avoid those things and we can engage in some sort of rehabilitation or exercise program, then there is evidence that we can get on top of this condition after a year or two or three, but it's not going to be ten.
0: Awesome. That's really great to reframe it as just another chronic persisting condition like type two diabetes where there might be some room for a multidisciplinary approach in that. And they're thinking long-term, they're thinking lifestyle changes as well in that picture. Are there other uh, multidisciplinary um, personnel, so allied health professionals who you would add in to that mix if there are some underlying cardiometabolic factors along with the frozen shoulder?
1: Yeah, definitely. So diabetes educator for me is really important. If they have got a diabetic frozen shoulder, that's a different kettle of fish. Certainly PT, exercise physiology, um, and psycholog- psychologists as well i have referred a bunch of patients to. GPs are important here as well because they need to be communicating the same message as we are. And this is my biggest gripe with our medical colleagues is that we're often giving conflicting advice, which the patient gets confused or, um, or even they start to doubt you because the hierarchy of medical management still suggests that GPs know more than us about musculoskeletal pain, which is interesting. So, so just trying to get everybody on the same page. Um, but you touched on specifically these metabolic conditions or these systemic factors, and it's, it's, it's super important that if somebody presents to you and they do have hypertension and they do have potentially metabolic syndrome or insulin resistance, then engaging in a health professional like an exercise physiologist or, or, or somebody along those lines, for general exercise prescription to improve their general health, paramount, and that and that has down the line consequences of you exercise more, you feel better psychologically. It may clean up your your homeostatic function within your body as well. You may sleep better. You may feel better about yourself from a self-esteem perspective. You may develop better self-efficacy because you you start to believe that you're getting better as a person, uh, and also and, and also your shoulders starting to get better as well. So. These down-the-line effects, and this is what I talk about in my courses or more recently I have in my online courses, what is, what's the actual effect of exercise therapy? It's not just the physical or the, the mechanical improvement. It's the affective, so it's the behavioural, the cognitive and the psychological. And then it's also the physiological, which I think is underappreciated. I think exercise actually promotes this homeostatic uh optimization which we don't really seem to look at so are we changing glutamate in the blood are we changing substance P? are we changing c-reactive all these things that we seem to just think ah that's that's physiology that's medicine related but the prescription of exercise actually changes the, those parameters positively so that's that's something that i'm starting to get into and it's actually where my phd is, is going in as well we're starting to look at Okay, so we know exercise works, but why does exercise work? Okay, not, not everybody has to get strong to get out of pain or to improve function. The prescription of strengthening exercises helps, but actually, do people actually get stronger with the prescri- prescription of strengthening exercises in line with their improvements in pain? There's no correlation there that was found in the shoulder specifically. So there's something else going on underneath the hood, and I feel like it's this multi-dimensional. Um, uh, system that so we talk about pain being multidimensional but frozen shoulder is multidimensional rotator cuff related shoulder pain is multidimensional knee pain is multidimensional everything is multidimensional I don't know why we, we just go oh pain persistent pain is complicated and it's multidimensional but so is rotator cuff related shoulder pain we know that metabolic syndrome leads to rotator cuff related shoulder pain genetics leads to rotator cuff pain uh, strength Scapular, maybe we know that life, general lifestyle factors, I can keep going on and on and on. They are, there are so many dimensions of uh, influences on rotator cuff related shoulder pain. It's not just strength, but because we know that strengthening exercises work really well, and we've got literature to support that, then we go, okay, you have a strength deficit. Now, my cause and effect brain can only think that strength deficit means increased strength, which means decreased pain. That's cool, but there's more to it and you don't have to tell the person about all of that stuff but us as practitioners need to know that there's more going on underneath the hood than a simple dualist notion of reduced strength, increased strength, decreased pain.
0: Awesome. The, the best pill there is, right? Exercise. Multifactorial yep. nature of, of that long-term lifestyle change that's moving beyond just the symptomatic focus or even just the simple range of motion strength gained, it's more the holistic approach. So then looking at that perspective, what are some of the the outcome measures that we can add into our our treatment of someone, say with a a frozen shoulder or, or general persisting pain, where we look at the entire picture or how can we kind of measure these kind of changes to someone's
1: health? Good question. So if we look at uh, specific patient-reported outcome measures, they're good. They're honestly good because they do capture improvement and they capture those who aren't improving. So the the SPARTI the Shoulder Pain and Disability Index and then the Quick Dash. They literally take two minutes to do and they, they are not burdensome for the clinician or for the patient. So they are two really good outcome measures to associate or to determine whether somebody's improving with your management or they are not. So that's a good starting point. Uh, Other things that are literally, this makes sense, but they're option, they're often actually captured within those outcome measures is okay. What, what do you want to get back to? Right? So if you want to get back to, this is just classic goal setting and it's kind of boring because I feel like I speak about it a lot, but, and you probably do as well. But if you have shoulder pain and you are 45 years old and you want to go out and play golf on the weekend, you can't. How do we get that person back into actually participating in golf some way? And that is an outcome measure. So then you break that down. So, okay, can you putt on the green right now? Yes, I can. Okay, how about you start with putting? Can you can we aim to start chipping five meters next week or next month? And then you collaborate and you come up with a bit of a plan in order to get them back to hitting a driver in six months' time. And then you can do the same for surfing, swimming, whatever you want to do. So so this is a classic uh you you reverse engineer the activity that they want to participate in that defines them as a human being and you reverse engineer a plan in order to get to that point so so the, the self-reported outcome measures i do but then i specifically make it a little bit more about them not about can you cut your dinner at night but can you participate in these things that make you happy as a person because we know intentional activities actually is what defines happiness. And this is, this is a great book that I read recently by Jonathan Haidt called The Happiness Hypothesis. An intentional activity, doing things you want to do because you want to do it based on some sort of intrinsic need or desire to, that's actually what makes us happy. Not doing the things that well, you have to do, or like going to work, for example, or you know, walking the dog in the afternoon because your, your dad says you have to, but things that you want to do for some intrinsic reason, that's what makes us happy. And if you feel happy, because you're getting back into activity after an injury that's going to reflect positively on your outcome.
0: Awesome. Going into the multi-dimensional nature of exercise and looking at more than just the the physical, going into the the functional breaking that down and then going into the emotional side of things because there will be mood changes as well. There's there's literature out there on the effective changes that occur with exercise, mm-hmm. the mood boosting effects even for people with depression it's it's a it's been proven in clinical trials to show benefits so i think we yeah we can get stuck into the the nitty-gritty of the strength gains and the function gains and forget the entire person in front of us that just enjoys exercise and what they want to do Mm. we can build a plan Mm. to get
1: them there don't forget that whether somebody gets better or not is determined by them so I'll, i'll clarify that so self-reported outcome measures like you don't have to see a, a massive increase in strength or range of motion you don't in order for somebody to think that they're getting better if they think that they're getting better does that make sense so they need evidence to see that they're getting better and that is by doing activity that they could do before they develop pain it's not by increases in range of motion or increases in strength on on manual muscle testing or with a handheld dynamometer or deadlifting more. That makes us feel better because we can see that their capacity is increasing, but that doesn't, actually, that, that doesn't define for that person that they're getting better. It's far more tied up in actually their perception of whether they're getting better or not and whether they're doing things that are meaningful to them is what defines recovery, not in lifting more weight which is what we want to see, which is just a which is the, which is the side effect of them being more confident to do more.
0: Awesome. We forget the power of the subjective, right? The subjective reported outcomes and that yeah. self-reported outcomes. We, we also forget the whole person-centered approach. Great stuff mm. because it's a paradigm shift to perhaps our, our way of thinking getting through university. So complete paradigm mm. shift. I wanted to quickly touch on uh, the utility of injections for, for frozen shoulder because there is evidence related to its, its efficacy, its, its effectiveness in the first few months. I wanted to touch on when you would determine someone's suitability for, for an injection at the start of their, their journey.
1: So it's, there's no algorithm, I'm afraid. It's just depending on how that person... So if someone is highly disabled or in a lot of pain, uh, then I'm more inclined to suggest an injection because it, it is powerful to prove to somebody with a frozen shoulder that their pain can be modified by an injection. You cannot modify frozen shoulder pain any other way. You cannot use symptom modification uh, interventions. You cannot use cognitive behavioral therapy in somebody with frozen shoulder because it's systemic that's not going anywhere. There is a, there's something going on in their system that prevents pain from, from being modified. So, so a hydrodilatation or an intra-articular injection into the, the synovitis that, that's common in frozen shoulder can actually prove to somebody with frozen shoulder that their pain, that we know about their pain, that it is a known entity. It's not this mystery because we've injected an agent into your shoulder, their pain diminishes, so there must be some relationship there. And it doesn't work for 100% of people, but it does work for 70% of people in, in my experience. So that just actually kickstarts more of a rehabilitation regime, and I'm not gonna say it provides a window of opportunity, but it more just emphasizes the fact that pain can be adaptable here, and there may be a scope for improvement in that individual, And it certainly doesn't negate the need to do rehabilitation. It just proves a point that they may not be stuck with this pain forever because this timeline, perceived timeline of pain is a really big predictor of outcome. So if somebody says to you, oh, this is never going to get better. And that is a, that is a very negative predictor of whether they're going to get better or not. So just by them feeling better about their prognosis actually results in a better prognosis. It's this, that you can think your own uh you can think things into existence and that's really important with that frozen shoulder as well so so if somebody is highly disabled they think that their pain is never going to go anywhere they've had it for ages their mum had it as well and they had it for five years and they never got better then i'm like okay this person might be a candidate for an injection however on uh, the opposite to that is if somebody comes in they understand the education, they want to exercise but they don't want to get an injection, they're happy that the evidence suggests they may get better naturally over a year or two, then I, I certainly don't push that person into getting an injection.
0: Awesome. So it can be a, a way to accelerate the rehab process and work on their expectations of the, the rehab so they get some positive expectations in the mix because it's quite a long journey. So having that initial acceleration Building that momentum at the start can be
1: helpful. Yeah, huge, it's huge. It, it just it promotes this, it, it promotes this, this sort of incentivized to keep going, you know? And it also, it, it's what we call self efficacy again, where hierarchically that person starts to believe that they can do a little bit more. So they get an injection, and then all of a sudden they can lift their arm to 45 degrees than they could to 30 degrees before. That means that that person could then extrapolate that and go, okay, if I just got an extra 15 degrees today, next month I may have another 15 degrees again. And so that's what self-efficacy actually is. It's this belief in their ability to function despite their pain. And people get confused with what self-efficacy actually is, but it's just a belief in their ability to do what they want to do despite their pain. And so all we're trying to do is we're trying to actually manipulate or mold that belief as best you can by using a pharmaceutical agent in this circumstance but if it wasn't a frozen shoulder then you can do it by symptom modification in experiments or education or whatever
0: awesome goes to the value of of getting giving someone a sense of control over their outcomes in yeah. the clinic and, and things that they can also do later on so they can see the improvements themselves
1: yeah real time real time and that's that's what they care about. They care about, okay, I am experiencing this improvement real time in first person. I'm not just being told that I'm getting better, I can see the evidence here. And it goes into that that quote, we learn by by action, we don't learn by being told what to do. Information is to behavior as spaghetti is to a brick, it doesn't change a thing.
0: Love that quote, how good is that one? (laughs) So good to use.